0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, several years ago, I was part of a team that was uh, doing premarriage counseling seminars. And uh, every time we did the seminar, I would do my session after lunch. It was a tough time to do it, but... I'd do two sessions, and I would stand up and I'd introduce myself, and then I would say this. Each of us are teaching in areas where we have the most experience and expertise, and I will be teaching on sexuality and spirituality, to which everybody in the crowd laughed a little bit, except the two guys I was doing the seminars with, you know. One of them was talking on finance, the other was talking about communication and personality, you know. But me, I got sex and spirituality. And that's why I was going after lunch. I think most of us would probably agree, this is a tough topic. You talk about sexuality, it's a little bit challenging. And if you think it's hard for me and you, think what it's like for Gail over here signing, okay? She's, there are signs she's using that she hasn't used in a while, okay? <laughs> She'll be using them today. I think that we would all agree that there is probably a wise way to do things in any, in any category, and then there is an equally unwise way to do things. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Drinking milk, okay? Unless you're lactose intolerant, it's a wise thing to drink milk, right? Strong bones, all that kind of Would you agree? Yeah, okay, drinking expired milk, never a wise thing, ever, okay? Here's another one, being polite to your waiter or your waitress, always a wise thing, right? It's never wise to be rude to the person who handles your food, ever. I imagine spit being involved somewhere along the line, okay? Okay, one, one more. Leaving your kids with a trustworthy babysitter is always wise. Wouldn't you agree with that? Leaving your kids with the creepy guy who hangs out at the mall, never wise. Just never wise. It's bad. With almost every area of life, we could probably find some overwhelming agreement on what's the best way to proceed. Except this one specific area of sexuality. When it comes to the subject of sex, there are numerous opinions. Sex is the one area of life we have trouble agreeing on where the guardrails should be. Guardrails are those moral boundaries that protect us from harm. And there is this great debate in our culture over where the guardrails are, where they should be, and whether we need guardrails at all. Before this uncomfortable level that has crept into the room, goes any higher, let's acknowledge that very few of us, if any of us at all, have followed God's wisdom completely in the area of sex. Can we agree with that? So what we hope to do today, and we're starting this today, but I, I couldn't wedge all of this information into one talk. So we've spread it out over three talks, and there is a linear thread that runs through all three of the talks. So I hope you'll plan to be here for the next two talks as well, or at least catch them online. So what we hope to do today is to start a dialogue by examining God's wisdom for our sexuality. And God does have a plan. He does have uh, some ideas. Through this series, we will share the Bible and what it has to say about sex. But what this series is not about, it's not intended to attack anyone or to make anyone feel guilty so that you do what I say you should do. It's just a time to look at God's Word and try to discover the truth that's there. Besides, guilt is a a terribly unhealthy motivator, and I refuse to use it. Because when somebody caves in to guilt and does what you want them to do there is a high probability of them resenting you and in this case resenting me and possibly the church and maybe even god in the process and i don't want any part of that i just want us to talk about truth i think of these truths as that are in the bible that we're going to be talking about as some of these guardrails. These are Scriptures that are designed to keep us on the best path that protects us from the trouble that exists beyond the guardrails. Jesus said that He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So there apparently is an abundant path that we could be on. So I want to encourage you during this series to have an open mind as we talk about truth that comes from the Bible about the topic of sex. Is that clear? Is that fair? All right. America's been in what sociologists often refer to as a culture war, or in the very least, a cultural debate for the last 60 years. And it has caused this significant chasm, this significant rift or divide in our world. Many of the main battle lines are all over the map, but one of the main battle lines is being fought over the topic of truth. Is there such a thing as absolute truth, or is all truth relative? Now, let me see if I can explain this to you. The color of our state bird, the cardinal, is what? Do we all agree that it's red? The color of our state cat is what? Blue. Right. Right. Anyone disagree with that? Hmm? Ushers, are you taking some names? Okay, good. These are examples of absolute truth, right? Seriously, to say that something is absolutely true means that it's independently true for all people. Even if they don't know it or recognize it to be true. The flip side or the opposite of absolute truth is what we would call relative truth. To say that something is relatively true means that it can be true for one person and not for another person. Does that make sense? What the culture has been fighting over is whether there is absolute truth that should govern our moral decisions. Our morality is based largely on our concept of truth. So when it comes to sex... The question is, are there absolute truths that are true for all men and women, or is truth determined by each individual? I want us to explore just a bit of kind of what's happened during the culture war, because there's been a major, major shift. Look at this. In the 1950s, 5% of high school girls and 10% of high school boys were sexually active. Five decades later, you have as many as 70% of high school girls and 80% of high school boys now are sexually active. In the 1950s, it was almost unheard of that a person would cohabit or live together with another person prior to marriage. Today, 74% of all 30-year-olds have said that they have cohabitated with a partner at least once. They've lived with someone they're not married with in a a cohabitative capacity at least once. And then the divorce rate. In the middle of the 20th century, the 1950s, the divorce rate rate was somewhere in single digits, percentage-wise. Today, now, it hovers around 50%. This rapid changes in behavior over a relatively short historical period of time hasn't just happened in general society. It's also occurred almost exactly the same in the church. And the speed of change has been staggering. Let me give you one last statistical example. In 1987, there were approximately 75 million people who rented a triple X porno video. And five years later, in 1992, the number rocketed to 490 million. And just four years later, in 1996, Reynolds had reached 665 million. Pornography is being produced all around the world, but the center of consumption is here in America. We distribute more pornography than any other country in the world. But once the internet exploded onto the scene, they stopped counting rentals. The hidden nature of pornographic activity online makes precise statistics really hard to come by, but about 40% of men in America visit porn sites regularly. And the percentage of women who do so is increasing rapidly. These statistics are overwhelming to me. They really are. If you spend much time looking at these things and studying them, they're a little bit, um, they complicate my world. They're a little overwhelming. But don't get lost in the details. There is a story that they tell that's very simple. We have witnessed a dramatic shift in our culture in just the last 50 or 60 years. In the church, we've even begun to see signs that if you can't beat them, join them. It's coming into the culture of the church. In an article entitled Strange Bedfellows that was in World Magazine recently, it described a panel discussion on sexuality and the church, and one of the comments was by Messiah College professor Janelle Paris, and she seemed to propose this dangerous compromise. She said churches should both lift up the ideal of premarital chastity, which we've done for centuries, and support people who do otherwise. If that sounds like a compromise, she said, it is, kind of. But consider the word compromise. If you want to be alone and be right, go ahead, but to promise or agree to work with another, that's compromise. It's not that bad. And listen to this. The bigger picture, though, is a renewed theology of sex In the church. That's a pivot from the biblical position. Think about the thought process here. She doesn't have confidence that the Holy Spirit living in the Christian can still have a power to help us obey God and overcome temptation. So she's saying, let's violate this one command so that we don't mess up all the others. I just think that's a flawed theology. Well, there are a number of causes for this shift in our culture. And I think there's there's probably a half a dozen or more, but there are three that seem to be prominent. The first is a shift from absolute truth to relative truth. We talked about that. More and more people are saying that truth is basically relative. It's up to me. And we don't need any guardrails, especially with regard to sexuality. There's a second shift, a cause to this shift, and that is the search for freedom that started in the 1960s and the 70s. And it's been continuing all along, kind of catching more and more momentum every decade. And then thirdly, this one hits rather close to home. The lack of biblical teaching on sex by the church. In fact, there are people who are in this room this morning, I would guess, who grew up in the church, and yet this message today is the very first time they ever heard anyone talk about sex in a message. These three factors help to create a perfect storm with regard to the cultural shift. You see, during the first part of the 20th century, the church was operating under a distorted picture. And the picture was this. Sex is dirty. It's bad. It's private. It should always be confined to the back room. We shouldn't talk about it. The unspoken rule was that you didn't say anything about sex outside of the bedroom. Children seeing their parents being so uncomfortable discussing sex concluded that sex must be bad. Or if they were Christians, God must be against sex. Silence not only created an ignorance among the next generation and a distortion of what the truth was, it set up future generations to be unprepared for the unrestrained waves of sexual license that would follow. This caused sexual moral standards to change faster than ever before, and it's had a significant impact on all of us. If we're really honest, it's had a profound impact on all of us. So what's the impact of this unrestrained sexual freedom, this unbridled sexual freedom? Well, first, once the floodgates opened, Fifth Avenue, that's those guys who, gals that do marketing on a national level, they realized early on that sex actually sells. You can use it to market anything. You want to sell something? just market the product in a subtle or even overt sexual way and sales will soar many of you probably remember a few years ago when a national hamburger chain pulled their commercials that featured barely dressed models and celebrities eating their hamburger that was basically it they had these these people who were extremely attractive dressed in hardly anything and they were eating a hamburger And it sold hamburgers because Madison Avenue knew that sex sells. Now, they pulled those ads because there were enough people in our culture still who said, hey, that's not right for us. And so they responsibly removed those advertisements. While I was teaching a class several years ago now on putting on the full armor of God, I was talking about doing spiritual battle with the enemy In uh, Ephesians 6, we were using Ephesians 6, and I had a guy who was sitting in the front row of the class, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the class, he blurts out, how am I supposed to deal with the hot babe on the billboard? And I said, I'm sorry? He said, how am I supposed to deal? Yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. What are you talking about? I mean, you talk about putting the brakes on a classroom immediately. And, and he kind of yelled it, so it was like everyone heard him, you know? Well, I asked a few qualifying questions, and what I came to find out was there was a billboard on Nicholasville Road that he drove by every day when he went to work, and he was having trouble with the image on the billboard. And I have no idea what they were trying to sell, but my friend convinced me that there was a billboard with a hot babe on it. And there were women going, that is offensive. And there were guys going, where exactly is this billboard? <laughs> just, just for research purposes, yeah. For much of this cultural change, the church has been spiritually on the sidelines. When Christians are exhibiting the same basic behavior that the world is promoting, then the invitation to join us at church or to consider believing in Jesus oftentimes falls on deaf ears. When our lives are not noticeably different before before the watching world, then it looks as if we have little to offer them. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect. And you hear us say all the time around here, you know, we're a group of people who are largely jacked up. We have our challenges. But shouldn't we be at least marginally different than the world? Shouldn't we at least be leaning away from the world towards Jesus? I mean, why should they join us when they look at us and they say, you're really no different than I am? And that's a really good question. Why should they? Recently, the sex scandals among some of the highest profile pastors in America and the public shame of priests' sexual abuse of children have left the reputation of the church in shambles. This has left many in the church to be confused and have feelings as if there is no one in the church that they can truly trust. We will never be perfect. We won't. But with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, He will help us and we can be more like Jesus. And there has been a cost to this unrestrained sexual freedom. We don't like to talk about it because it seems to tarnish this free love mindset, but there's been a cost to it. The sexual revolution has resulted in over one million people divorcing every year, which leaves somewhere around a million kids each year in a home where there is only a mom or a dad. They're not both there. And I know some of you... Battle that personally. That is the struggle that you find yourself in. Some of you, not because of your desire. But you know that it's not ideal. It's not fair to a mom to have to double up on the parenting duties because dad is nowhere to be found, or vice versa. In addition to that, the dramatic rise of sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS and herpes, and now a strain of incurable gonorrhea, and there are numerous other STDs that have had a staggering effect over the last several decades. Whether you're a Christian or not, you'll likely agree that probably the most destructive cost in America over the last 60 years is the loss of our, of our sexual morals. We've spent millions of dollars in various sex education programs and in the prevention of sexually transmitted diseases only to see the behaviors we are trying to prevent actually increasing. All of this bad news should do something to us. It should awaken us or at least cause us to stop for a few minutes and think, where are we? Is this the best we can do? Think about where we are as a country. Think about where we are specifically as a church and where we should be when it comes to human sexuality and ask that question. Is this the best we can do? Really? Could we do better? Maybe? You are a sexual being and so am I. Surprise. I thought you would laugh at that. Thanks for laughing at that. How you think about sex, how I think about sex, impacts our identity. It impacts our view of God and our relationships with other people. I'm suggesting that many of us have been told lies through our lives about sexuality. Many of us, for all of our lives, regardless of our race, our gender, our marital status, our socioeconomic uh, status, or even our marital status. Did I say that already? Yeah. The lines that regulate sexuality have gotten blurred. Through this series, I want us to look together at some of the fallacies, some of the myths we've been told and we've believed and for many of us, they have guided our lives up to this point. Some of, these, some of these are not that wrong, and some of them are significantly off base. These lines get blurred by lies that are told, and these lies seems, seem more convincing when they're repeated over and over again that we assume they're true just because... They're always repeated. And I'll be honest with you. I think that happens on both sides of this cultural war. So let's look at some of these fallacies, some of these myths. And then let's summarize the truth. Let's agree that the truth is our focal point, where we want to arrive at. And then let's talk about if God's truth actually is a solution... Let's talk about how it can blow those lies out of the water and really truthfully change the trajectory of our lives in the future. So, in the time that I have left, I want to talk about the very first fallacy, the first myth, okay? And then we'll talk about the others in the next couple sermons. But the first one is this. God is anti-sex. That's that's the first fallacy, God is anti-sex. There's this feeling among many in the world who think that the Bible is overly restrictive when it comes to sex. That God must be a prude to write those kinds of things. And since God takes a stand about sex being confined to marriage, that he many people come to believe that he's just anti-sex. If you're just going to confine it to marriage, then you must be some kind of a killjoy. And you're opposed to sex as a whole. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the truth is God is extraordinarily pro-sex. He's actually designed sex for us. There are three key facets we find in Scripture. The first is He designed it to provide physical pleasure. We'll talk about these in just a minute. Secondly, He designed it to provide procreation And thirdly, he designed it to provide relational intimacy. This fallacy that God is anti-sex, in other words, when sex happens, God blushes, and then he says to the angels, don't look, don't look. In, In this view, sexuality is an accidental side effect of humans that surprise God and us, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. The truth of the matter is that God is extraordinarily pro-sex. And the reason we know that is that he created it. He invented sex to provide physical pleasure. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, say this with me, may her breasts satisfy you. You did not say it. <laughs> may her breasts satisfy you always. May, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Have you ever been intoxicated with her love? It's just uncomfortable to say it. And somebody goes, we're in church. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Can anybody say amen to that? <laughs> Yeah, one woman and 8,000 men. <laughs> and ironically, the woman was louder than the 8,000, right? Yeah. That sounds a lot like God is encouraging a husband and wife to experience the pleasure of sex. Sex is not accidental. It was in the original design. It's part of God's plan. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27... We read that God's about God's decision to create mankind. Listen to what He says. Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the, fi- so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them, and then not long after the creation of mankind. God spoke to them. This is, what he, this is what it says. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and, and subdue it. God created Adam, and then later He created Eve. And then it's at this point that God gave the new couple their wedding blessing. This is what He said to them. Be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and multiply. The translation The first thing that God said to our original parents was, make love, enjoy yourselves, and have babies. (laughs) Can I be a little more direct? Yeah, I doubt it. (laughs) God told them to have sex. You cannot be fruitful and you do not multiply unless you're having sex. It's actually holy. It's sacred because God directed it and God is for it. And then to ensure that this procreation happens, God designed us with sexual attraction and desires to make sex happen. God made women attractive to men. And he made and women to have a desire for men. God does give some the gift of singleness. He gives it to certain people, and they have this unique set of desires to serve Him in ways that will require them to be celibate and to live single. But for most of us, that yearning in our hearts for connection and attraction to the opposite sex involves marriage. It's in marriage that our God-given desire to be known intimately and to know our spouse is fulfilled. These attractions are much more than simply sexual. We want to be known. We want to be loved. We want to connect to our spouse intellectually and spiritually and emotionally, as well as physically. God was clear in the very first marriage sermon that the marriage relationship was creating a brand new relationship, a relationship that would demand our life spouse becomes our number one priority Listen to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. He says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That word united, some of your translations say cleave to his wife. That means, in the Hebrew, it means to cement together. He's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve were naked, and they were unashamed, but not just naked physically. They were emotionally transparent as well. They were psychologically transparent. They were one with each other on all these levels, as well as a connection to their Creator. Do you know that the Hebrew language actually has three words that we translate sex in the Old Testament? The first one means to lie with. The second one means to go into. And the third one means to know. K-N-O-W. And when the Bible refers to David having sex with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, or when the Old Testament refers to a man who goes to a prostitute, or when there is sex that's happening outside of the sanctions that God has placed around sex, the Bible uses phrases like, They lie together. Or he goes into her to describe the sexual act. Because that's primarily all it is. Just a physical act. And yet when God's Word describes Adam and Eve's sexual relationship, it says that Adam knew Eve. Now this, my friends, is far from some lustful tryst or simple sexual act. For this couple. Sex was, and it still is, all about intimacy, connection, and being known intimately. If sex for you is just a physical act, I want you to know it could be a whole lot more. A whole lot more. And I hope you'll be here on the third Sunday of this series because I'm going to share with you an illustration that I think shines remarkable light on this point alone. All right. Timothy Keller is a minister, Redeemer, Presbyterian in New York City, and he he said this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Who wouldn't want that? Sex the way God designed it will lead to a depth of love that has tremendous meaning and power. It's why couples are married for 40 and 50 and 60 and sometimes even 70 years. The value of being known will bless you at the deepest levels. And I'll tell you, if you're in a marriage and that's not the reality, that can change. God can move you from where you are to this place where we're talking about being known. Yeah, my friends, God's not anti-sex. He's so pro-sex, he invented it. I can't think of a better way to define how God feels about sex. He said, oh, you want to know? I'm the author. We could talk on and on, and my wife says, no, you really only should talk about 20 minutes about sex. I think she's afraid I'm going to share. Let me say this to you as we close. I'm thankful for you being here today. If you intended to be here or you just wandered in, I hope that you'll commit to being here over the next couple weeks. In this message, it is possible that we have hit a nerve with you or we've brought up issues that have caused you pain in the past and now all of a sudden we've regenerated some of that. We want you to know you're not alone in this. I'm going to be down here at the end of this message. I'd love to talk to you. Our staff is available this week. We'd love to meet with you. There are some names at the bottom of your program on the outline side of some contacts. If you want to go further and you'd like to do it anonymously, you can choose appropriately there who you want to contact. We just don't want to leave you hanging out there, twisting in the wind. Because we know this is serious, serious issues. Let me ask you this question and then I'll pray. Can you imagine sex as something that's sacred? I mean, that might be a foreign idea to you. Can you imagine sex as this intimate gift from God that he gave to you to satisfy your need for love that's built on security and commitment? What if God actually did create sex to be a whole lot more than what we've settled for with this free love idea will you continue with me to pray that God will reveal what he wants you to know through this series continue to be part of the discussion and promise me that you'll never settle for less than you deserve because the truth is you matter you matter to God and you matter to us So never settle for less. Let's pray together. Lord, I can almost hear this exhale in the room as we end this talk. And I recognize that sometimes these uh, certain topics can create all kinds of anxiety and stress in our lives. Anytime you talk about sex, I know that people get tense and some people get angry. And and yet, God, for those that... uh, The topic itself just dredges up Difficult memories from the past Fill them with shame again And they feel like they're just not worthy Lord, I pray Because I know the Bible says That the enemy, Satan, is the accuser Because he often reminds us Of the mistakes that we've made in the past And I just pray, God, that uh, you would remind everyone who's here today that um, as far as the east is from the west, you remember our sins no more. Once you forgive us, it's forgotten. And even though somebody else might bring it up or the devil himself might remind you of it, those sins are washed away and you are white as snow. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who's struggling with those things and never had Jesus wash their sins away. Because what he did on the cross was sufficient. He gave his life that we might have our sins forgiven and have that relationship with, with the Lord God Almighty forever and ever. God, we trust you in that. Lord, I pray for courage for those that need to step out and say, hey, I just need to know more about Jesus and how he can forgive me. I pray that would happen today, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.